Grace and peace to you from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. Word of God for our meditation this Sunday is our second lesson, 1 Corinthians 10, verses 1 to 13, as printed in your bulletin and already read. Dear brothers and sisters in Christ, perhaps you have heard this from someone in a conversation. Perhaps you have been the one to say it. You've been talking about each other's family backgrounds, and the other person has just paused at the end of describing a rather horrendous tale of a heartless mother or a cruel father, or maybe just a parent who was unfeeling or absent when love and comfort were really needed. And then, well, at least there's one thing that I can say my dad was good for. He's given me a great example of what not to be as a husband or a father. Bad examples, unfortunately, are not hard to find. The talented athlete turns out to be a terrible human being. The Hollywood power player is revealed as an abuser. And the popular politician gets caught in a scandal that completely negates everything he's ever stood for. And in your own life, there may be friends, neighbors, even family members about whom you tell yourself and maybe tell your kids, don't be like that. We naturally tend to rank such people, you know, as bad, not so bad, really bad. Some we're just more sympathetic towards. Some we will never give the benefit of a doubt. The worst are not those who grow up in broken homes or deep poverty or, or didn't have the opportunity to get a good education and did wrong things. The worst are those people who came from good homes, had all the advantages that life could give, and were given opportunity after opportunity that others did not receive, and then still took it all for granted and threw it away with bad behavior and foolish decisions. In our reading today, at the beginning of 1 Corinthians 10, Paul is pointing the Corinthians and pointing us to the Israelites who left Egypt with Moses heading for the promised land as exactly that kind of bad example. Like Jesus in our Gospel, Paul is appealing to believers not to take God's grace for granted or, or think that just because so far you've had every advantage and nothing bad has happened to you, the way it has happened to someone else, well, that that means somehow that things will always go your way regardless of how you live or what you do. But the apostles, be careful. Don't be like that is more than just a warning. It's a reminder to remember who you are to God and how much He values you. You are worth so much more than just turning out to be someone else's bad example to learn from. Now, Paul doesn't start where we might expect him to, pointing to everything that's bad about his bad examples. He doesn't want the focus to be on their wretchedness, but on their blessedness. So he begins with a, a rich and detailed listing of the huge spiritual advantages that the Israelites had enjoyed under Moses. 
If anyone was ever set up for success in walking with the Lord and keeping a strong and vibrant faith, they were. The glory of the Lord was their constant companion during their journey from Egypt to Canaan. A pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night. They never, never once had to wonder if their God was real. And after the wonders of the the ten plagues that secured their release from slavery under Pharaoh, the Lord, through Moses, performed an even more amazing miracle by parting the waters of the Red Sea so that they could pass through on dry ground unmolested and then bringing the waters back down on the Egyptian army that pursued them, ending that threat once and for all. Paul likens this display of God's grace that bound them to the Lord to baptism. And then he reminds us how the Lord also fed the Israelites miraculously with manna for 40 years and gave them water in the the desert wilderness miraculously flowing out of rock. And Paul connects this display of powerful, effective love to Christ, the, the Son of God, who was with the people then to bless and care for them, even though His taking on human flesh was still some 1,500 years in the future. The point the Apostle wanted the Corinthians to understand is for us as well. Just as the Israelites were deeply and astoundingly blessed with spiritual riches in their relationship to the Lord, so are believers who follow the incarnate Christ who was crucified and rose for them. The reference to baptism is a powerful reminder. You and I, like every Christian, have been bound to our Savior Jesus. For many of us, we were so young when it happened that that we don't remember it. For others, like pretty much everyone in the Corinthian church, it was a baptism as adults. But either way... The water and the word of baptism were used by God to change us from not my people to my dear children. The blessing flows not from the human act of of dipping, pouring, washing, but from the work and sacrifice of Christ, whose death and resurrection secured for us the salvation, forgiveness, and new life that baptism gives us. Being baptized a long time ago, even not being able to remember your baptism, changes nothing about what it means for your relationship to the Lord of grace. You are His and He is yours. This identity and status is a blessing that is rich beyond all measure. But even the greatest of gifts can be taken for granted. And this is the problem that the Holy Spirit writing through Paul draws to our attention here. We are only told what the Israelites did, not what they were thinking that they did those things, but it's not hard to imagine. They they just got so familiar with the idea of God's presence and blessing that they figured there was nothing they could do that would put that at risk. They started thinking that the Lord's favor was something 
that they deserved for being such great people. And if they were so great, well, then, then anything that they chose to do must also be great. Or maybe they even imagined that since they had been so well-educated by Moses' teaching, that they now knew enough to make their own decisions about right and wrong. Whatever motivated them, or however they excused their choices, though, it should have been clear that those were the wrong choices. Paul lists some of them. They, they desired evil things, and those desires led them to evil acts. They committed idolatry. The first time, less than two months after the Lord appeared to them in smoke and thunder on Mount Sinai, and they promised to keep the commandments He gave them. And they were still in the same place, but then they decided that Moses was too long coming down from the mountain, and they needed a new God, a golden calf to worship, and to worship with revelry that rivaled that of the pagan nations all around them. That happened at the beginning of their years in the wilderness. Toward the end of those years, they allowed themselves to be seduced by the pagan worship of the Moabites, which included wild sexual immorality. And in between those events, and all through their wanderings, there was distrust and grumbling, jealousy over Moses' leadership, complaining about the food, criticizing God's judgments, and more. Left unmentioned by Paul was the faithlessness that gave the opportunity for so much more of this thanklessness. There was that time, not too long after Sinai, when they refused to trust that the Lord would give them victory over the Canaanites, despite His promise to do so, and all the promises that He had already so powerfully kept. And in consequence, they spent 40 years in the wilderness waiting for what He so wanted to give them. The specific examples Paul used here were chosen for a reason. The sins the Israelites fell into were the same sins that the members of the Corinthian congregation were in danger from. The city of Corinth was famous for its sexual immorality, and so such temptations would have surrounded the Christians there at every turn. But it was also a pagan city, and many, if not most, of the believers there at one time had been idol worshippers, meaning that family members and former friends and just people out in the community would be urging them to return to that idol worship or, or even suggesting that, you know, nobody would really know. They could combine Christ, being Christians with sacrificing to the gods and everyone would be happy that way. And of course, there was grumbling and division in the Corinthian church. They split into factions. They rebelled against Paul's leadership. They were dissatisfied with God's ways and substituted their own and so much more. And just as the apostle was able to draw parallels with Israel for the Corinthians, so it is not hard for us to do the same with them. Few of us... Few of us are likely to be tempted to, to bow down to or, or sacrifice to idols of, of wood or gold or stone. But that's because we already have our own idols of success and wealth, of popularity and possessions. 
of comfort and constant connectedness, of fitness and fitting in, of pleasure and ego. And as much as we might like to think that the city of Corinth stands out uniquely for its sexual pressures and temptations, it really is likely that today our society is no better, and perhaps even worse. We'd be kidding ourselves if we thought that somehow the people of our church are immune and have never given in. And grumbling and rebellion, complaints abound about the church's rules that are really the standards of the Bible. Complaints about leaders who don't follow along where society is leading. Well, they're quickly criticized. And God's wisdom in dealing with our lives and with the world is readily and commonly questioned. And all of it, all of it is playing with fire. You can't not get burnt. It's playing Russian roulette with your soul. It's, like in the cartoons, sawing a hole in the floor in a circle around you. What you had been relying on will soon collapse. You will fall, and it will be your own foolish fault. Paul reminds us of what taking God's grace and blessings for granted cost the Israelites. The price of worshiping the golden calf was not just a broken covenant. 3,000 of the idolaters were put to death when Moses returned and discovered what had been done. And there was sickness among the people too. When the men of Israel joined with the Moabite women in heathen sexual immorality, 23,000 of them fell from a plague in one day because the Lord's wrath against them burned so hot. And for their grumbling griping and rebellion. Some Israelites were killed by poisonous snakes. Some were swallowed up by the ground. Some were sickened. And when Paul says God was not pleased with most of them, most of them means all but two. Of all the Israelites 20 years or older who left Egypt with Moses, only Joshua and Caleb lived to see and enter the promised land of Canaan. All the rest died in the wilderness as punishment for their unfaithfulness on the way. So the warning here is clear. Don't do what the Israelites did. Don't think that you can get away with doing things contrary to God's will just because God has forgiven you in the past. Don't experiment to see how far you can stretch the limits of God's mercy and patience. Don't go exploring the depths of wickedness to see just how low you can go. Don't risk losing the faith that was given you at baptism, grown in you with God's Word and strengthened with the Lord's Supper. Don't turn your back on Christ who has sacrificed Himself for your salvation, who delivered you from sin, not for sin. Don't side with Satan against your Savior. Just don't. Learn from the bad example of those who have fallen in the past and don't become a bad example for those who follow. Be careful if you think you are standing firm because you might actually fall and fall forever.
You are not stronger or better than those Israelites or than Paul's Corinthian brothers. You are not invulnerable to temptation or wiser than God and His prophets and apostles. Your place in God's family does not give you a license to do as you please without consequence. And your faith is at risk every time you act contrary to it. Nor is it wise to make excuses that that try to set you apart from those who fell in the past. It's harder to be a Christian today with everything we have to deal with. just doesn't fly. The temptations you face are the same temptations believers of every age and era have faced, even though they may come in different forms. Neither can we say, God just doesn't appreciate how hard it is for me to live His way in our world. Because the Son of God did just that and suffered and died for it. But the warning here to be careful, not to throw your salvation away, does not flow from any kind of don't make me look bad annoyance or you're going to regret this frustration. It comes, this warning, from love. Paul does not want, I do not want, your Christian parents do not want, your church does not want, but most importantly, God does not want you to miss out on eternal life in paradise or the blessings of life with Him here on earth. He doesn't want you to go to hell. He doesn't want you to die in your sins. And this is what happens to anyone who throws away his or her faith. Just the same as what happens to those who never believed at all. You are worth too much to the Lord for that. You are not just a number or statistic, but you are a soul. You are a dear child of the Heavenly Father, and He wants you home with Him when this life is over. If you have any doubt of your value to Him, just remember what He did for you. He gave His one and only Son, gave Him over to suffering and to death, even death on a cross, to pay for your sins, to remove your guilt, to make you holy, and to deliver you from death and hell. He has saved you, baptized you, called you, chosen you, blessed you abundantly, answered your prayers, protected you, provided for you everything. As often as you or I might forget about Jesus, as often as you or I might stop thinking about God, He always remembers us and always holds us dear in His heart. So stop, look, and listen. Take a good look at yourself in the mirror of God's law and and study His Word. Search out your sins, failings, and false beliefs. Confess them with true sorrow. Admit your inability to help yourself and throw yourself on God's mercy. Turn to Jesus again and again for forgiveness and healing. Look to the cross for the assurance of your salvation. Remember your baptism that places you firmly in God's family. 
and trust your Lord for all things. And He will come through. Trust Him to guide you. Trust Him to save you. Trust Him to strengthen you, comfort you, forgive you, instruct you, bless you. Trust Him because you know God is faithful. As much as any of us might ever be faithless on on any day, God is always and eternally faithful to us and to every promise He makes us. So hold on to Him and don't let go for any reason. You know He will not fail you. You know He loves you. You know He wants and does what is best for you. And God is not just faithful to you generally. He is faithful even as you face all the kinds of trials and tests and temptations that life in the flesh and life in this world present us with. Idolatry and indolence, adultery and unbelief, covetousness and carelessness. He promises that no matter how strong the temptations might ever be, He will not allow them to go beyond what you are able to handle. And He will give you a way out if you trust Him and are patient. Enduring might mean pain or frustration in the short term. It might even mean coming out on the other side in heaven. But He will always bring us through and always bring us home. God is faithful. So be careful. Not just because bad things might happen to you if you give in and and give in to what you should not give in to. But be careful because you have value. The greatest value to the Lord. He has blessed you richly and showered you with His grace in countless ways in Christ. If anything, You want to be the model of faith and faithfulness that others can imitate. You are worth far too much to ever let yourselves become a bad example. Amen. Please rise. And the peace of God which transcends all understanding will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Amen.